Hello and welcome. These are some sermons given by Monsignor Rosito from the years 1995 to the year 2016. Enjoy. Today is the third Sunday in Advent known as Gaudete Sunday, a interlude of happiness that streaks into this period of Advent preparatory for Christmas, for which then we have the rose-colored vestments and the flowers that decorate our altars on this particular Sunday. And the epistle is taken from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Brethren, rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known to all men. The Lord is near. Have no anxiety, but in every prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let petitions be made known to God. And may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Holy Gospel is taken from the Gospel according to St. John. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. At that time the Jews sent to John from Jerusalem priests and Levites to ask him, Who art thou? And he acknowledged and did not deny, and he acknowledged, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou the prophet? And he said, No. They therefore said to him, Who art thou, that we may give answer to those who sent us? What hast thou to say of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the desert, Make straight the way of the Lord, as said Isaiah the prophet. And they who had been sent were from among the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, Why then didst thou baptize, if thou art not the Christ, nor Elias, nor the prophet? John said to them in answer, I baptize with water. But in the midst of you there has stood one whom you do not know. He it is who is to come after me, who has been set above me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to loose. These things took place at Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So far the words of this day is Holy Gospel. John said to them in answer, I baptize with water, but in the midst of you there stood one whom you do not know. These are words taken from the Gospel of today's Holy Mass in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. My dear friends in Christ, I don't know how many of you are interested in astronomy. It's a very interesting hobby and a study for those who get into it. They're fascinated because the sky is alive with phenomena that we don't even pay attention to. The prophet said, or the psalmist said in the Old Testament, When I consider the work of thy handy, uh, of thy hand, O Lord, how great thou art. And what is man that thou hast paid attention to him in the vast reaches of all the things that thou hast made? I'm sure you're aware of the Hubble telescope, that telescope that has been shot into the atmosphere that circles the earth and can be pointed to different areas of the sky. Uh, 
space to bring back to us by transmission electronically pictures that we cannot get because the earth is surrounded by a mantle of atmosphere and dust that prevents us from seeing more clearly the things that lie beyond this earth. And so this particular uh, telescope lies beyond the obstruction of the atmosphere, clouds and dust, and has a chance to see more clearly, and reach out into space more distantly to see things that we have not seen before. However, you also know that the Hubble telescope was flawed when it was the mirror was ground, the edges were off a tiniest bit, enough to blur these images, and so it was flawed. After all the money spent, the time and effort, it did not perform, and so another effort was made to send men into space with a space shuttle to bring to this flawed telescope the corrections necessary, and they put in mirrors to adjust, to bring in the sharpness that, that was not there before, to make others adjustments, to tune it up, and then to return to Earth and leaving it in its orbit. And now it performs flawlessly and better than ever expected. It is said, before the Endeavour rescue and repair flight, Hubble could see out to four billion light years away from Earth. Now Hubble's vision reach has tripled to 12 billion miles, and it promised to increase its clarity as engineers and astronomers tweaked the space observatory system. Now, I see this by way of introduction to the consideration of God's creation. When you take your... Um, notebooks and turn to that area <coughs> of God's creation. Let's see, it's um, lesson number 13. We're going to jump ahead here and move around a little bit since we're into the season of Advent and consider uh, the creation of God. And we know sort of dimly our minds are not tweaked to that perfection of observation and realization and appreciation of what creation really is. Now, take the Earth. The Earth is a planet that is 24,000 miles around at the equator. Light travels at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. That staggers the imagination, the speed of light, which is an absolute. It's just a little bit beyond 186,000 miles per second, but there isn't anything faster than that, as far as we know. They are trying to probe to see if there isn't anything that is instantaneous throughout the whole universe, but they have not found it. So it takes light some time to travel across these vast reaches of space that's out there that we don't think about hardly at all. 186,000 miles per second. Now, if you take all the seconds in a year and multiply these seconds by 186,000, you get what we call a light year. That's 
The distance it takes for light to travel at 186,000 miles per second for a year is one light year. Now, this, the sun is 93 million miles away from us. And it takes light seven minutes to travel from the sun to earth. Now, when Hubble was put into orbit, it was able to see four billion light years. Multiply that if you can. And with the tweaking of its systems to a better perfection, it can see three times as far, to 12 billion light years. Can you imagine how big space is? I can't, you can't, but we can put numbers and try to let this stand for the immensity of God's creation. How big then is God? How great is God? That he made all these things out of nothing. And he's greater than this. So the question, what do we mean when we say that God is the creator of heaven and earth? When we say that God is the creator of heaven and earth, we mean that he made all things from nothing by his almighty power. And we talk about power, men's power, earth-moving machines, the atomic bomb, the hydrogen bomb. Multiply these by all the bombs that exist. And you begin to get only a little firecracker notion of what God is in comparison <coughs> with this might that man thinks he has in the palm of his hands by his control, or what any individual person thinks that he is, champion, top of the line, and so on, and then he thinks that he is as good as or greater than God, we need to stop and reflect. What do we mean when we say God, or creation, or the creator, almighty, all-powerful, all-intelligent, all-good. It's beyond our ability to grasp. Even when we put numbers that go on for billions of light years, we can't imagine God and his power and his creation. In the beginning, God alone lived. Now, he didn't have us. We weren't around. The universe wasn't existing. There was God alone. Then, out of nothing, by his almighty power, he created heaven and earth and all things in heaven and on earth. Only God can create. That is, he alone can make something out of nothing. Time began with this creation. Before that, there was no time. Before that was only eternity. Now, again, eternity. What does it mean to be eternal? Man is just but a speck of time in this ocean of eternity that goes on beyond the oceans. God created heaven and earth and everything in heaven and earth. By this is meant everything which is not God. Angels, um, atoms, clouds, stars, galaxies, and heaven refers to the angels. He made heaven and earth. Angels. Now, we've got to put them into the construct of creation. 
and they're not visible. They have no extension. You don't measure them by light years. You don't weigh them by any measure in the scale. They are spiritual. God made all the spiritual world besides. This then is only part of creation that we think about, that we concern ourselves with. Only part of it. In fact, it's the smaller part. How great are the angels who have no limits? Um, they're spiritual. God created everything by an act of his will. I will. Let there be light. And there was light. What does the Bible tell us about the creation of the world? We want to find out about the creation of the world? Well, scientists have done a lot of probing. They've come all the way back to the first moment of existence. They call it the Big Bang. That's the latest theory. The Big Bang from which explosion came everything that now has extended itself into space and time. Uh, what does the Bible say? Does it talk about a Big Bang? No. God said, let there be light. Well, what does that mean? Because the sun and the moon and the stars were created only after the first day. Um, what about this development of the understanding from the Bible of creation? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. First line of the Bible. In the beginning. When time began, when God created... There was the heavens and the earth. Now the story of the creation of the world is contained in the first chapter in the first three verses of the second chapter of the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And remember, this book was written by Moses after a long history of the Jewish uh, people, or the Israelitic people, I should say, because the Jews were known by, as Jews only much, much later. They were called Israelites. Um... They were the patriarchs, and we can read about them, but when we go back, God uh, revealed to Moses in the year 1250 B.C., 1,250, more or less, before the birth of Christ, 1,250 uh, years before Christ, the first words of the Bible were written down, telling about the beginning of the creation in the world. And... Um, Moses was the inheritor of many legends from other civilizations, the Sumerians, the um, Akkadians. These were people who lived along the Tigris-Euphrates River valleys in present-day Iraq. Uh, it was called Babylonia back then. But um, Abraham came from Ur of Chaldea, which was Babylonia, and he went up to Haran, and then went down south and into Palestine and beyond Palestine, into Egypt, then came back up again into Palestine. So he traveled the area, and he was long before Moses. Moses lived 1,250 before Christ. Abraham lived 1,850 years before Christ. And this all happened, and Moses wrote it down for the first time when he wrote the books of the Bible, the first five books called the Pentateuch, the first book of which is called Genesis. Now, this story was written by a Hebrew author who wished to tell his readers in the simplest way possible that God made everything. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And he borrowed from the literature of his time, but he didn't follow it slavishly because they talked about gods and goddesses. Moses didn't talk about gods and goddesses. He talked about one God. And 
he tailored a lot of this information that was available to him, at least in myth or story form, and he put it into the Bible as a basis for understanding the realities of God's truth revealed to him. And we must be careful not to over-exaggerate this um, uh, revelation of God. It was an inspiration, inspiration that guided him to picking and choosing what he would put down, but also guarding him to put down only what God wanted him for us to know and to have. And so the Bible leaves, the Bible writing leaves the author free <coughs> to use his information, but God guides him in the use of that information to tell us the truth. So there were no gods and goddesses in the stories of creation, but one God. And he reveals to us in a way that his readers, who were nomads, who didn't have books, they didn't have printing, they didn't have reading and writing back in those days, they had people who listened. <clears throat> and they were scribes who were taught how to read and to tell the people. And they had people who had great memories to memorize these things and to tell people in epic poems that go on for chapters and chapters, all memorized. The greatest of which, I think, <clears throat> is Homer's poem of the Iliad and the Odyssey in Greek. And it was a blind man who would recite this to the tune of a harp, and people would listen and go back over these stories and exemplify them in their lives, in their daily activities. And they had this unity of literature and culture and civilization that they shared because of these transmission of uh, tales and stories and of their history as far back as they knew it could retrieve it before it was all written down later. Now, since this sevenfold division of God's activity is an artificial division, he created all things in six days and on the seventh day he rested, it follows that the assignment of the various works to various days must also be artificial. Did it happen exactly this way? It happened, but this is how he put it down. What the author wanted to emphasize was that everything came ultimately from God. That was one of the big questions. Where did everything come from? And Aristotle, who was a very brilliant Greek philosopher, said it always existed. Possible. The Bible tells us, no, God made it. And then who was God, of course, was further revealed in the further pages of the Bible. <clears throat> Some of the important truths that are contained in the story of creation are that the one God, an absolute Lord, has created all things and is utterly distinct from them. So there's another error that you can make. <clears throat> Say, well, everything that exists is part of God. Therefore, we are part of God, and God is us, and we are God. And it's possible if God willed it to be that way, but he didn't. He made it separate from himself. It's limited, it's created, it's dependent on him, who alone exists of himself. <clears throat> Second, God's will is all-powerful. He designed it. This is what he chose it to be. Now, we can't interfere with it. We can't rearrange it. You know, we can't swim in the sea like fish. We can't fly in the, birds, uh, in the air like birds. We can fly and we can go under the waters, but we have to design things to make that possible because it's not normal to us. And God limits us to our normalcy as being human beings, bodies and souls. He has only to speak and the elements of the universe appear and are organized. Of course, he's the organizer. How intelligent God is. When you go down to the tiniest part of the atom, and we haven't got instruments to go any farther than to the still 
outer shells of the innermost part of the atom, God is there. He made that. It's all designed. We don't create the atom. We just find out what is the atom. What is it like? And it's a mysterious thing. And we can't make it other than it is. We simply have to learn what it is as best we can. And so it is with all the phenomenon of nature and of the universe. Man is the supreme good and goal of creation. Now, best of all, God created us with intelligence, free will. The rhythm of man's earthly life is to be that of the seventh day week, seven day week with his one day of rest. By describing God as resting on the seventh day, the author teaches uh, that the Lord has sanctified the Sabbath, which means rest, not Saturday. The Lord has made holy the work of man and all his leisure. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all his work of creation. It can also be added that the author's intention or attention to all the details of creation throughout the account teaches us that God is interested in all the details of our daily existence. No, God seems so far away because we don't see him. We don't hear him. But God is right there with us. Keeping us in existence, paying attention to all the details of our life. He said, not a hair falls from your head that God doesn't know. And who can add to his height a single inch by merely thinking about it? God will accomplish that growth. How interesting it is to see children growing from infancy to childhood and into puberty and then into adulthood. God designed all of that. And we can't change it. There are variations within certain limits. We're not all exactly the same, but we follow a pattern that God has designed. He's a creator. And he is the Lord and Master over us and all that he has placed under us as Lord and Master over visible creation. So we are lords and uh, mistresses of God's handiwork. We are stewards. We have to give an account of how we use his creation that he's placed into our care and into our use for his glory and honor. So you see, there is, there is a uh, pattern. It's not arbitrary. There's a little leeway built in, but by and large, this is called a natural law. God created things by, by his intelligence and will. It can also be added that the author's intention to, uh, attention to all the details of creation throughout the account teaches us that God is interested in all the details of our daily existence and there is no contradiction between the account of the book of Genesis and the latest discoveries of science concerning the origin of matter. There is no contradiction. Well, we say, how come it says this? And then we find out from archaeology or from scientific endeavors that it's really much uh, uh, different. There is no contradiction. An apparent contradiction arises through the mistake of uninformed persons who forget that the church reads the Bible bearing in mind the principal object of the sacred office. Now, this is what we have to keep in mind. It's not a textbook of science. It's not a mathematical book. Uh, the author is saying, look, there's certain things you ought to know. Here's, I'm telling you the story, 
how it is. There is a God who created all things. We belong to him. We have to keep it in the order that he presented to us. An apparent contradiction from archaeology, but then men are trying to figure these things out. They only have little clues. They're trying to figure out the whole story, the whole scene, and it's impossible. So we have opinions, we have theories, we have ideas that God tells us. This is the basis. And don't get wrong on these things because creation is apart from me. I'm not involved in the material of the things that I put in your hands. I have created them for you. They belong to me. I organized and designed it. But I am not the world. I am not the universe. I am God above them and above you. And I call you, come to me. And that is the basic story of the Bible. In writing the account of the creation, the sacred writer, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, wished to impress upon the Jews for whom he was writing, or the Israelites, that there is but one God, and that he created the entire universe living and lifeless. One God. In fact, you hear in Jewish programs on the radio or television, Hear, O Israel, one is your God. And because that's the basis of their religion, they reject the Trinity. They reject Christ as God. One is your God, and there is no one besides him. We believe that too, with a distinction that in God there are three persons. But that's another lesson. At that time, the Jews or the Israelites were surrounded by idols. Remember, they lived in the context of civilizations of their time. Peoples who believed in the existence of many gods and worshipped all kinds of creatures, even the sun, moon, planets, animals, and images. In pursuing his aim, the sacred writer used the form that was most effective under the circumstances to convey his meaning. It is a popular form. That is, it relates historical events in popular expression and order. That shouldn't bother us. Go back to his time, 1,200 years before Christ, and see what it was like to live then. And you'll see he had an objective, and he did it quite well in performing this for the Jews of his time to understand, and for us in later times, though ours are more scientific times. The words used, while in themselves not scientific terms, are in conformity with ordinary speech and understanding by ordinary people. In the same way today we say, the sun rises in the east, even when we know through the investigations of science that the sun does not rise at all. Events are set down in an order uh, not necessarily scientific, but suited to the understanding of a primitive people and therefore of all mankind. We must remember that the sacred writer was not aiming to teach physics or anthropology, but faith. And this is what distinguishes them, uh, those who come critically uh, that uh, uh, the Bible is wrong and that uh, is not uh, therefore uh, revealed from God. But it's a myth that men have made up and therefore we can change it if we so choose or we can ignore it or reject it altogether we have to keep clear this one is uh, uh, idea that he was speaking according to the times and the notions of the people to convey higher truths now 
What about man? Lesson 17, an image of God. An image of God. A stone, a planet, sun. No, man. What is man? Man is a creature composed of body and soul and made to the image and likeness of God. Now that is so wonderful. We have been created above all nature and we are made to the image and likeness of God. We're greater than the whole universe. With all its billions of light years, we're greater than that. This will cease, we will continue. Man is a creature composed of body and soul. He's created, and doesn't make himself, but he has a soul as well as a body. It is possible that the body of man may have evolved from a lower form, but the soul, which is immaterial, could not have evolved. And we're not going to go into evolution right here and now. We don't have the time. But uh, if God so chose, he could have used this. But he creates each one of us at the moment of conception. And we know that we're all different kinds of peoples, different kinds of uh, nationalities, races, and so on. But besides this, each one is a direct creation of God. Now, science would not know that. Uh, history would not show that. But Revelation tells us that. And we have this to know that there's no one like us. Though we may look the same or we may have patterns of similarity, we are unique. Each one of us is unique. There's no one like us. Everyone is great, therefore. Each one in his own way is uniquely great and wonderful and beautiful and good. No matter how they compare with one another. Because God makes each one of us. And he calls each one of us to himself. No matter what the color of your skin or your education or your talents. It is in his soul that man can be said to be in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, the goodness doesn't come from the body, how beautiful or how uh, proportioned, but the soul that has to grow and develop as it learns. It's education, like food feeds the body, education feeds the soul. And then what the soul does, just like the body produces work, so the soul produces goodness. And this is the power that is beyond the universe. That man can be good like the goodness of God to the degree that man is in the image and likeness of God. We should always reverence our likeness to God. That's why everybody has a dignity. It's not because he's smart, not because he's rich or capable, because he's a champion of one kind or another, but because we have a likeness to God. Every person, even the sinners, even the poor, even the ugly, even those who seem to have no use, cripples, poor people who are handicapped. No, we're all created to reflect God. And there's where everybody has his dignity that cannot be taken away from him. My baptism... Man becomes the adopted son of God. What a 
fantastic revelation. Unless you're born again of water and the Holy Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's not even just the spiritual world that man by his soul and mind has by nature, but there's a world beyond that, the supernatural world of God that is his by his nature that can be shared by us if we are born again into this adoption as children of God. That's why we're special. We're super special because of baptism. And if we respect human beings because they're made in the image and likeness of God, how much more than those who are sanctified, baptized, and made to share the divine, intimate life of God's holiness and grace and sanctification. This is something that escapes even Catholics. They don't think about this. Perhaps they don't know, or perhaps they haven't penetrated with that realization of the Catechism that tells us that we are children of God, not figuratively, but literally, but adopted, since we're created, but nevertheless to share this divinity of God, this goodness of God, this likeness of God. The soul of man is different from the soul of brute animals. Dogs, seals, camels, uh, giraffes, all these are animals that have an animal soul which is not rational. They run by instinct. They move. Put hay in front of a hungry cow or horse and they're going to eat the hay. It's their nature to be impelled. And a man can deny himself by fasting. I'm hungry but I'm not going to eat. I make a choice. An animal doesn't do that. Animals have senses and instinct, but neither reason nor free will. Free will is that power of the soul to choose whether to act or not to act, and that belongs to man and to angels. The soul and body are not loosely connected parts of man. They are united in a substantial union. You can't have a human being if you have only a body or only a soul. Now, when the soul leaves the body and the body dies, the soul is in an unnatural condition. It is bound to come back again to be reunited to the body, which will take place at the general resurrection of the dead, which faith tells us. Man cannot figure this part out. When the body dies, it's over with. There's nothing beyond. No faith tells us there is a beyond and there's a reunion that will take place with the resurrection of the dead, the bodies of the dead, but the soul still alive will now be united once more in a substantial union that makes it human, but supernaturalized. The soul is not located in any particular member of the body, but is whole and entire in each part. Now, this is from philosophy based on the revelation of God, so we can come to think that it's entirely in us, the soul. Is this likeness to God in the body or in the soul? The likeness, of course, is chiefly in the soul. Like God, man's soul is an immortal spirit. will never die. Now that we exist, we are in eternity. Our bodies will terminate. The end of the world will come. And then there will be the reunion. And then we will live body and soul united in the glory or the damnation. That will be the ultimate state that in this life we are trying to arrive at. Hopefully with faith, hope, and charity to heaven. Some deny the existence of the soul. We don't see it. Therefore, you can't uh, say it exists. But we know that 
if man does spiritual things, it must come from a spiritual principle, not from the body, not from the brain, but from a soul, a spiritual entity that is intelligent. By the fruit you'll know them, what's not seen. Because it cannot be seen, yet the same people would not deny the existence of human reason, even if this cannot be seen either. And there's some strange things that people will come to by logic on a tangent that leads them to illogic or insanity or unsanity. Uh, some claim that man has two souls, one good and one evil, striving for mastery. But the struggle that we often experience comes from only one soul with different tendencies arising from the fact of our being made of both body and soul, partly material and partly spiritual. In a living person, the soul should not be considered apart from the body. So we talk about the person, total person. Their union is as close as the relation between a musician and his instrument at the hour of a concert. It's not the instrument playing, is not the man playing, but man playing the instrument that produces the music. Through his two faculties of the soul, understanding and free will, man obtains dominion over the material world. So we are masters, if we so choose to be. Now, it doesn't come naturally, normally, I should say, but we have to work at it to arrive at a perfection of maturity and a growth to achieve this mastery. So you don't become an engineer until you study but you can be an engineer. How can we prove that the soul of man is immortal, can we? We can prove that the soul of man is immortal because man's acts of intelligence are spiritual. Therefore, his soul must be a spiritual being, not dependent on matter, although we need matter through which to work, both to see and then to work through. If you have a stroke suddenly, you're limited. But your intelligence is still there. The power to think is still there. man with a brain tumor may not be able to think, but remove the tumor and he thinks. And hence, not subject to decay or death. Because he is a spiritual being, he cannot be destroyed. Spiritual things cannot come apart. The body can come apart because it's material. The spiritual thing is simple, and it will continue. Even though matter, uh, or if even if matter cannot totally disappear, it goes back to its elements. However small the particle, how can the soul of man of a far higher order be thought to <coughs> suffer extinction? It's not a conclusive argument, but it is as good as we're going to come up with. The final is, the Bible tells us that man is made to live forever. Man has mind and will. He can reflect, reason, plan for the future, make judgments, remember. These prove his soul spiritual. Such a soul cannot die as the body does. Now what about the appearances of dead people? There have been many instances of the dead appearing to the living. In the Gospel, Moses and Elias appeared to Mount, on Mount Tabor to Christ and three of his apostles. At Christ's death, many who were dead arose and appeared in Jerusalem. The Blessed Virgin has through the centuries continued to appear to men. Such instances are almost innumerable. Saints have also returned to earth to comfort or instruct the living. Even souls in purgatory have returned, interesting, to beg for prayers. We must, however, be very careful about believing in particular instances of appearances of the, uh, by the dead. 
The devil can and often does use this instrumentality to trick the gullible. So again, we have to have rules to determine which is from God and which is not from God. And the church is pretty experienced in this matter. Is belief in the immortality of the soul universal? Have all peoples believe this? Yes. Generally, by and large, uh, primitive peoples, civilizations, through history, have always believed. And where do we go? We go to their graves, dig them up, and we see what they put in the graves as to the hereafter to provide them in their spiritual existence. The tombs of the Egyptians, the mummified bodies, and the food and the articles of daily living were placed there. Even kings had chariots and boats and things buried in their tombs, these masterful tombs that are marvels to us even today that have survived from Egyptian times. So Holy Scripture, the Word of God, teaches that the soul is immortal. So here we have God's creation and man as God's creature made to his image and likeness and called to share his divinity. That's you. And that's God. And these things are written for our instruction and we forget or we don't take the time to learn and he stands among us unknown to us just as Christ among the Jews though he was there they didn't know it but they came to his knowledge and not everybody but those who did came to the knowledge of their own fullness of the means of salvation and we are in that position during Advent also to prepare for his coming into our knowledge, into our understanding, and to react accordingly. For God has made all these things for us. Vast as this beautiful universe is, it will pass away. But we will not. But where we go depends upon how we live in this universe and how we conduct our lives and our spiritual efforts to know and to love and to serve God so that we can be happy with him forever in the next world. So... Some four billion years after the Big Bang, trillions of spiraling um, galaxies formed from rushing floods of matter and newborn stars. Among them was our galaxy, the Milky Way. Seven billion more years passed and another new star came to life, our sun. It collected huge clouds of dust and gas and the ricocheting debris of other stars all this matter coalesced into plants and moons. The third planet from this sun would be called Earth, and on this Earth, God placed man. May we not destroy this Earth, and may it not destroy us. And when we come to know the Creator and ourselves, made to His image and likeness, we call to be with Him forever. That's Advent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.